0: I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Second Timothy chapter three. Second Timothy chapter three. We'll be looking at a couple passages of uh, Scripture this morning, and we'll begin in in Second Timothy. Um, I'm sure most of you have heard of the Japanese art of kintsugi, uh, which is basically the art of repairing broken pottery by mending the areas of breakage with repair material that is colored with gold or silver or platinum. It's a beautiful art form. The reason for this approach is that the Kintsugi artist views the breakage and the repair as a part of the history of that particular object and he wants that history to be displayed rather than concealed. And he puts beauty where there was once breakage. So someone practicing this particular art form doesn't throw away a broken vase, for example, nor do they try to mend the vase in such a way that no one could ever tell that it was ever broken. Instead, they accentuate the area where the breakage actually occurred so that the story of that item is on display. In one sense, we can say that that item has been on a journey from brokenness to wholeness, and you can see the story of that journey when you look at the object, right? Think for a moment about how God did something like this with his son, Jesus Christ, when God resurrected his son from the dead after Jesus had been crucified, God healed Jesus' body completely and glorified his body with resurrection power and brought Jesus forth from the tomb. But God also intentionally left scars on Jesus' hands and feet and in his side because those scars tell the story of, of when Jesus was broken for us at the cross. And Jesus didn't try to hide those scars after he was raised. In fact, he actually drew his disciples' attention to those scars and invited them to look upon them and even to feel them. And trust me, when they saw his scars, those scars did not detract from His beauty in their eyes, right? Those scars were actually a part of what made him all the more beautiful to them. And it'll be the same for us when we see Jesus with scars in his hands and feet and side in heaven. There's a degree to which God does something similar for us as well, at least in this life When God takes our broken selves and makes us whole through Christ, he doesn't do so in a way that no one could ever tell that we were ever broken, right? What he does is this. He heals us where we were broken, but he leaves golden traces where the brokenness used to be. And those golden traces are grace, these golden traces become a part of the beauty that God is working in us for his glory. Yes, there may be scars that you and I still bear in our journey to wholeness. But there is gold in those scars, which tell the story of our journey from the brokenness of sin to wholeness in Christ. Yes, Jacob was left limping after God smote his hip during an all-night wrestling match. But that limp told an amazing story of God's gracious blessing in Jacob's life. Yes, the apostle Paul had a thorn in his flesh that God refused to remove from him. Yet Paul loved to tell the story of how Christ put all-sufficient grace right where the thorn was. Yes, Paul had to live the rest of his life, all of his Christian life, with the memories of his violent and blasphemous past before he was saved. But he loved telling people the story about how Jesus saved him from being a violent, blaspheming persecutor of the church to being a follower of Jesus. And God wants to do something similar in all of our lives, and he wants us to tell our story as well so that other broken people can know that there is hope for them too. Our mission as a church is expressed in our purpose statement, which goes like this, helping people journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I've said to you before A church needs to be careful about advertising itself with such a purpose statement because broken people might actually believe that we mean what we say and show up to receive help. I'm being facetious when I say that because the truth is that all of us are broken sinners in need of desperate help from God and from one another. When we speak of brokenness, in our purpose statement, we're, we're talking about a multifaceted brokenness, actually. Basically, it would include uh, brokenness that results from sin. That'd be a, a way to summarize what the brokenness is. But it would include the brokenness that we experience on the receiving end of other people's sins against us. Some of you have been broken horribly and crushed by the sins of people against you. This brokenness would also include the brokenness that comes from suffering in a fallen and a broken world, which often leaves us crushed and broken. But when we speak of this brokenness, we're also speaking of the brokenness of our own sins, The brokenness that our sin brings between us and God, between us and other people, and even brokenness within ourselves as we're fragmented inwardly, as our conscience is alternately accusing and excusing us for the sins that we commit. Related to this, we're also talking about Not just the brokenness of sin, but a godly brokenness over our sins, which is a beautiful work of God's grace in the lives of people. As he awakens in us a conviction over our sins producing within us, the Bible says a broken and a contrite heart that God will never despise because he's the one who produces that brokenness. Our goal as a church is to proclaim the truth of God's holy word so that God might use his word to awaken in people a brokenness over their sin and their need for a savior. And then we want to point them to that savior, Jesus Christ, who is the only one who can save them from the brokenness of sin and make them whole. And I'm sure you understand that this journey from the brokenness of sin to wholeness does not end at conversion, right? Conversion is just the beginning of this amazing journey. I've been a Christian for decades now, and I I honestly rejoice in how different of a man I am than the kind of man that I was 30 years ago. But I'm also astonished over how much is still broken in me. Many of you, I know, would speak the same way. Fortunately, even after we're saved, God's Spirit keeps doing a sweet work of grace in us, convicting us of sin and comforting us through the atonement that Christ provides through the cross, comforting us with the assurance of God's love and melting our hearts into deeper layers of loving obedience to to Him. That's a slow motion miracle that happens over the long haul of life. A miracle that is deep and it's real and will reach its completion when we stand before Christ in glory, when we're completely and utterly whole. And I can't wait for that day. Can you? It's this journey to wholeness that I want to talk about this morning. With the time that we have, I want to just. Ponder two truths, two truths that we should know if we want to experience wholeness and help others to do the same. I can't remember the last time I preached a sermon to you that had only two points. So remember this day. Two truths that we should know if we want to experience wholeness and to help others to do the same. Truth number one. What we need to know is that the holy scriptures are God's ordained means to bring each of us to wholeness. God doesn't leave it to us to get there on our own. He gives us the means. And we learn in scripture that the holy scriptures are God's ordained means to bring each of us to wholeness. Observe how Paul makes this point beginning in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, and then how he crescendos in verse 17. For now, look at verse 15. In verse 15, Paul says to Timothy, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able or literally are powerful to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings that Paul is talking about here is primarily the Old Testament scriptures at this time. And Paul describes these writings as sacred or holy, set apart by God to do a very special work in the lives of people. God gives these inspired writings a power, a power that gives a person wisdom a wisdom that leads to salvation, a salvation that comes to a person through faith, a faith which is in the person of Jesus Christ. The scripture is the treasure map, as it were, in which God leads a person to the only place where salvation can be found, over the person of Jesus Christ. If you're looking for salvation and you want to know where it is, This is your treasure map, this book right here. And in the word of God, God places an X over Jesus Christ and says to you, it is here where you will find salvation from sin. It is at the cross where you will find salvation in him and you can obtain this salvation from him by believing in him as your savior king, crucified, upon a cross and raised from the dead on your behalf. A person will never find such wisdom for salvation by studying the wisdom of the sages from centuries past or in modern times. A person will never find such wisdom for salvation by studying nature. The stars of heaven and the depths of the ocean can teach you about God's power and about his handiwork, but they cannot give you the wisdom that you need to obtain salvation through faith in Christ Jesus and through his shed blood at the cross. You can learn everything that science has to teach you about the natural world, and you can spend your whole life exploring the glories of creation. Yet it is only in scripture where you will learn that salvation is found in Jesus Christ and only in him and through faith in him. And that's what Paul is teaching us here in 2 Timothy 3:15. But the news that Paul delivers here is I think even richer than that upon closer inspection. The scriptures are not just able to give a person wisdom that leads to salvation. Literally Paul says He tells us that the scriptures give one wisdom, literally in the Greek text, into salvation. The scripture is powerful to give us wisdom into salvation. You want to know what this means? This exact same expression is used in 1 Peter 2.2, 2, when Peter speaks to Christian people who have already been saved, and he tells them to long for the milk of the word so that they might grow by it into salvation. Think about that for a second. Peter's readers are already Christians who are already inside the realm of salvation. They're already inside the door of salvation and yet peter still wants them to grow into salvation in other words he wants them to be brought more deeply into the realm of salvation and all that it offers so keep that in mind when paul uses the same expression here in second timothy verse 15 Here in this passage, in 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul is telling us that the scriptures have the power to give us the wisdom to get us inside the door of salvation and then once inside to continue to take us deeper and deeper into salvation and all that it offers. So maybe you are right now outside the door of salvation and you need to get in. Well, open the Bible And read it and let it give you the wisdom you need to get into salvation. Maybe you are saved already, but you are just barely inside the door of salvation. To you, Jesus says, come in, come further in. Imagine someone invites you into over to their house and into their home and you ring their doorbell and they open the door. What do they say? Come in. So imagine you come in, but you just take one step inside the house and close the door behind you, and your back is up against the front door. What are they going to say? They're going to look at you and say, no, come in and invite you even deeper into their home. That's Jesus' message always every day to those of us who are believers. He's always beckoning us further and deeper into salvation in him Perhaps you need deliverance from a particular sin that keeps stumbling you. The scriptures can give you the wisdom that you need to find answers and ultimately experience victory over that sin. Perhaps you need grace to lay aside bitterness and to be able to forgive someone who has sinned against you. Well, the scriptures can take you to that spot inside of the realm of salvation where you will find exactly the grace and the wisdom you need to let go of bitterness and to forgive perhaps you need a deeper grace to handle a very uh, difficult trial that you're going through right now well the scriptures can give you wisdom that you need to find and lay hold of that deeper grace to help you in this time of trial Now, how does Scripture do this? How does it bring us to salvation and then even deeper into salvation once we're saved? Look at verse 16. In verse 16, Paul says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Paul is teaching us that the scripture, both the Old and the New Testaments, are breathed out by God. They come from him. Every single word is from the Lord. And Paul says that all of this scripture is profitable for teaching. In other words, it's profitable to teach us all that we need to know about God and about ourselves and about the world in which we live and about how to be saved through Christ Paul then says that the scripture is profitable for reproof, which means that God's word is profitable for telling us what is wrong with us. That's exciting, isn't it? Well, you know you want that. You go to the doctor because you vaguely know something's wrong with you. You want an answer. You want the doctor to tell you what is wrong. God's word does that. God's word does not simply tell us what we want to hear, but it critiques us and it rebukes us where we need it most. It tells us what is wrong with us and it gives us a vocabulary for understanding and giving expression to our fallen, broken condition. Without the Bible, all of us would walk around having a very strong sense that something's wrong with us and with the world in which we live. But we would have no way of comprehending what our problem is apart from the help that the Bible provides. And our biggest problem, the Bible says, is sin. Your sin. Fortunately, the Bible is not just profitable for telling us what is wrong with us, but it's also profitable for correction which is a positive word. The Greek word used here that's translated correction was used to speak of mending a broken bone and making it whole, or it was used to speak of taking something that was crooked and making it straight. How many of you have things that are broken and crooked In you raise your hand? Yeah, all of us do. Paul is teaching us here that the word of God is able to take you in areas where you are broken and crooked and make you whole. God working through his word doing that. So think about all the things that are broken and crooked in you still and realize that God through his word can help you to be fixed in those areas, both in this life and ultimately in the next. Paul also tells us that the word of God or the scriptures is profitable for Training in righteousness, teaching us practically how to obtain the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith in him, and then teaching us how to walk in this righteousness rather than walking in sin, which is what we once did. Now, look at the ultimate purpose for which God's word yields all of this profit in our lives. In verse 17, Paul says, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for Every good work. I I wonder if the word adequate used to mean something better than it does now. Um, It's not really the best word, right? Today, if my wife cooks a meal and I eat it, she's like, what did you think of the meal? Um, If I said it's adequate, that, you know, that she wouldn't, she wouldn't take that very well. Um, So, but maybe maybe back years ago, this word adequate really meant something more powerful than it does today. Uh, let, let's explore this just for a second. The Greek words that are translated adequate and equipped are actually the same Greek word. That shows up twice, essentially, in this verse. But the word translated equipped, which is the second occurrence of This Greek word in this passage has a preposition attached to the front of it to intensify it. Literally, this passage can read, so that the man of God may be equipped, comma, equipped out for every good work or totally equipped for every good work. Or we can translate it this way, as some would suggest, so that the man of God may be complete, totally completed for every good work. This guys is the language of wholeness and God's word. The Holy scriptures are designed to bring us to this state of being complete, totally completed for every good work. So obviously we learn here that the scriptures are completely sufficient to make us complete and whole but then what does that mean i mean you might read this passage 2 timothy 3:15 through 17 and think to yourself okay if the scripture is totally sufficient to make me whole and complete then evidently i don't need anything else in my life except my bible all i need to do is go into a private room and spend 16 hours a day studying the Bible, and given enough time, I will eventually achieve completeness in the privacy of that room. Well, you can't think that way, and you wouldn't think that way, even if you read 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, fairly. Think about it. Paul mentions that Timothy has known the sacred writings from when? From childhood. Who do you suppose taught him the scriptures when he was a child? Well, it was his mother and his grandmother, as we learned earlier in this very letter. So Timothy's acquaintance with scripture came through godly parental authorities in his life who taught him the word of God. And how did Timothy learn about the salvation through Christ that the Old Testament Scriptures had been pointing him to all along? Well, he learned about that when he heard the Apostle Paul preach. So evidently, Timothy needed a preacher. And if the Word of God is designed to equip Timothy and us for every good work, who do you suppose are the recipients of those good works. I mean, a person can only do so many good works in a private room all by himself. Try it, it's hard. The range is very limited. It's other people who are to be the beneficiaries of those good works, right? Which requires community. And think about why Paul is even pumping Timothy up with this high view of Scripture in this passage. He's doing so because Timothy himself is an essential ingredient in the lives of other people. And Paul is about to lay on Timothy a most serious responsibility, and that is to preach the word to other people, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove. Rebuke and exhort people with great patience and doctrine. I hope you're getting the point here. Paul is giving Timothy this high view of Scripture because Timothy is the lead pastor of the church of Ephesus. And Paul wants Timothy to put the Scriptures to use as he guides the men and women who compose the church of Ephesus. Evidently, the Christians in the church of Ephesus didn't just need the scriptures. They also needed a man named Timothy to be involved in their life and to fulfill his scriptural ministry to them. So when Paul teaches here in this passage the sufficiency of scripture, He's not saying that all you need is the Bible and nothing and no one else. Instead, he's saying that the Bible is the all-sufficient guide that points us first and foremost to Christ, right? And tells us everything we need to know about experiencing salvation and forgiveness of sins through him. This is why Paul speaks the way he does in Colossians 128 When he says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. This is the language of wholeness. Christ is the all-sufficient one. And the scripture is sufficient in the sense that it points us to Christ, who is altogether sufficient to save us. And make us truly complete. But we must add one more nuance to our understanding of this sufficiency of scripture. A man living on an island by himself with only his Bible and Jesus will never experience the Bible nor Jesus as richly as a person would who is experiencing the Bible and Jesus in community with others in the local church. This leads me to the second truth about wholeness that I want us to ponder this morning. Number two, this scripture-generated wholeness is a communal wholeness achieved in and through the church. Observe the image of relational wholeness that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, as he speaks to the Ephesian congregation, after laying out for them the glories of the gospel, he says to them, beginning in verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Evidently guys, this path that we are to walk on as Christians has other people on it. And we are to show love toward them and do the hard work of maintaining unity with them. And this is to be a unity built upon the following things that we share In common, listed in verses four through six, where Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's the foundation of our unity. These realities are what we draw from in pursuing unity and walking in community with brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, why is it essential that we be unified in walking together with one another in this way? Well, because God has designed us to need each other. In verse 7, Paul says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We must walk in unity with one another because, as the language here indicates, Christ has not given to each of us the full package of what we each need for life and godliness. He's given to each of us only a measure, and he has spread out the rest of what we need inside our brothers and sisters in Christ. This means that Jesus intentionally, upon saving us, leaves us each with deficits that must be supplied through the gifting that he has given to other people. So, therefore, we must walk in community with other gifted believers so that we can make up for their lack with the gifting that Christ has given to us and so that we can allow them to supply what is lacking in us through the gifting that Christ has measured out and given to them. Does that make sense? Now go down to verse 11 and observe some of the gifts that Christ gives and the reason for these gifts. Beginning in verse 11 of Ephesians 4, Paul says, and he Jesus who died experienced the ravages of death and then was raised and ascended to heaven. And upon ascending, he's giving gifts to men. And among the gifts, Paul says, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. This Greek word that is translated equipping here is an interesting word. It's the same root word that we see in Second Timothy 3, in our passage earlier, this particular word is used in Matthew 4.21 to speak of men who were mending their nets, not equipping their nets in the sense that we use the term equipping, but mending their nets, meaning mending the tears in the nets to make the nets whole and therefore useful. This word is also used in Galatians six one to speak of restoring a brother who has been caught in a trespass, restoring him to obedience, restoring him to fellowship with God, restoring him to a state of spiritual health and wholeness. So evidently, Christ gives apostles and prophets whose words are now enshrined in Scripture, along with evangelists who preach the gospel message of salvation through Christ to us, along with pastors and teachers who lead and who teach God's word to local church communities for, he says, the equipping of the saints. In other words, to mend the saints when they are broken, to restore the saints when they have gone astray, to nurture the spiritual health of the saints and to supply the saints with the equipment that they need so that they, the saints, can engage in the work of service or ministry. Now, think about this for a moment and think about what these gifts from Christ say about you. If someone is in a conversation with you And suddenly they reach out and offer you a breath mint as a gift. What would you do? Would you say, oh, thank you for this gift. You're so generous. This is the 20th breath mint you've given me today. You're so kind and generous to me. Or would you eventually look at them at some point and say, what are you saying about me? Are you saying... I need these breath mints. And by the way, if you wouldn't think to ask that question, you probably should. And that may be a part of your problem. But here's my point, that Jesus Christ would die and be raised and ascend to heaven in order to give you these gifts means that he thinks you really need them. Evidently, he knows you and knows that you need the ministry of the apostles and the prophets whose words are now enshrined in his word. He knows that you need evangelists in your life who preach the gospel to you and teach you how to think gospel and reason from the gospel to every area of your life and to share that gospel with other people. And the fact that Jesus provides you pastors which literally means shepherds. That's what the Greek word used here means. Means that he views you as sheep. And that's not the most flattering animal to be thought of as. Sheep are animals who can't just live and survive on their own. They need a shepherd. They need a flock to be a part of that is being led by that shepherd. Sheep cannot protect themselves Fully, And they need a shepherd to keep watch and protect them and to make sure that they are staying close to the flock. A sheep is not the coolest animal in the world to be likened to. But that's how Jesus views you and me even after we're saved. So he provides us shepherds who teach us and keep watch over our souls and shepherd us And who use the word of God to equip us so that we can then do the work of ministry. So looking at these gifts, all of us, you and I, we should all look at these gifts that Jesus brings to us and say, what are you saying by this? Are you saying that I need these? And Jesus says, yes, I am. And we need to receive that and say, Jesus knows me better than I know myself. And if he thinks I need these gifts in my life, well, then I'm going to receive them and make the most of them. Paul is teaching us here that Christ has given us these gifts. He says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service. And then notice what he says next. To what end do the saints do the work of service or ministry? With all of their varied gifting, Paul says, to the building up of the body of Christ, which is what? That's the church. Paul teaches in Ephesians 1. So evidently, we're not just to be about making ourselves individually whole, but we are each to play our part in building up the body of Christ, which is the church. And we are each to let ourselves engage. In this ministry together until something happens and listen to this description of the wholeness of the church community for which we are to aim and which is Christ's aim. Paul says we do this until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. This is the language of wholeness, and it's a communal wholeness, not just your individual wholeness. You see, in saving you, God was not just interested in your individual, personal wholeness. If you're a Christian, God is interested in using you to help build up Christ's church. God is building something bigger than you, and he actually wants to use you to be a part of that Project. This is why Paul speaks the way he does in verses 15 and 16. Telling us that, listen, listen to what he says here. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's what Christ is after. The grammar of verse 16 is very complex. But if you strip what Paul is saying down to the basic subject, verb, and direct object of this verse, you end up with this astounding truth. The whole body grows the body. The whole body causes the growth of the body. So it's not pastors alone who grow the body it's not even scripture like a book of the bible just sitting here it's not just the scripture alone that causes the growth of the body it is the whole body that causes the growth of the body as each scripture saturated gospel centered christ filled member of the body is doing their individual part and ministering in the context of being fitted and joined together in meaningful relationships with others in the local church. Does that make sense? At the turn of the last century, uh, Donald Macrossan wrote a hymn entitled On the Jericho Road. How many of you have heard that song? It's a clever hymn with a catchy tune. I've had it in my head all week after hearing watching a video of someone singing it. I can't get this song out of my head. But one of the lines of its chorus uh, doesn't quite fit with Paul's language in Ephesians 4. The chorus begins with these words, and I would sing it to you, but just for the sake of time, let me just read it uh, to you. On the Jericho Road, there's room for just two. No more and no less, just Jesus and you. I'm honestly not sure what the author means by the Jericho Road. I've never been to Jericho, so maybe there is a road that's only big enough for Jesus and you. Uh, But I do know that the salvation road that you are on is one that intentionally has room for Many brothers and sisters in Christ in your life whom God wants you to journey with and wants them to journey with you. Paul is saying in your journey with Christ, it's not just Jesus and you. In order to experience the fullness of Jesus, you need to be walking in relationships with others in the church. Just let me collect a few thoughts here as we turn a corner towards the end this morning Uh, back in uh, 2001 uh, the elders began what ended up being a three year journey uh, a process of critiquing ourselves and our church and even our ministry as elders and we were when we were done with this process we we wrote out what we had concluded, and we gave to the congregation a document entitled, Compliments and Criticisms of Cornerstone. And we gave that to the congregation in 2004. This document featured seven compliments regarding things that we felt, as elders, that we were doing well in as a church, but it also included seven criticisms regarding things that we came to realize— we were not doing so well in. And one of those criticisms went like this. Let me read it to you. While we have rightly expected our ministry of Bible proclamation to cause people to grow in practical Christian living and service, we have not put adequate energy into nurturing meaningful relationships to serve as the environment in which our people can be ministered to and grow in such areas. This realization along with others in the document prompted us as elders to make some changes and one of those changes was to launch our care group ministry in 2005. So this year is the 15th anniversary of our care group ministry. We realized as elders that we had rightly understood that the proclamation of scripture is central and it's vital to spiritual growth, but we also realized that we were failing to appreciate how it is that meaningful relationships are supposed to serve as the matrix in which that spiritual growth can occur. During that time we took a fresh look at John chapter 17 verse 23 where Jesus prays, That we would be perfected in unity. We realize that in praying this request, Jesus was not simply praying that we would achieve a more perfected unity, though that is included. We realize that he's also praying that we would each of us be brought to maturity within the context of that unity. In other words, Jesus is praying, at least in part, that we would achieve unity with one another in our relationships so that we could each be brought to spiritual maturity inside the nutrient-rich environment of unified relationships with each other. So if you want to achieve wholeness, open your Bible and read it, devour it, Join with the local church community and devour the Bible together with the members of that local church. Let God use the leaders of that church and the members of that church in your life. Allow your life to be fitted together with them such that they can participate in your spiritual growth and you can participate in theirs and so that you can serve together for the larger cause of Christ in the world. Learn to do life with other broken souls who are believing in Christ and being made whole by him. Be a part of their unfolding story of salvation and let them be a part of your unfolding story of salvation. You say, Milton, that that looks good on paper, but that's just so hard because everyone else is so messed up. That's a part of the process. See, you're messed up too, and you're never going to know that unless you're in relationship with other people, right? I was pretty messed up as a single man. I learned a lot of ways that I had been messed up all along after I got married, and I had someone to help me to see that. (laughs) Uh, Relationships, whether in marriage or any relationships, have a way of drawing that out and showing us ways that we're broken and need to grow and... We then see our need, our spiritual poverty, and we're crying out to God for help, and we let other people help us in that journey, and we can do the same for other people. The rigor of all of that, the difficulties, the challenges, the tears, and the pain, and sometimes offenses taken and forgiveness sought and then granted, that's all a part of the beauty of the work that God is doing in us as he brings us to wholeness. Of course, in saying this, I know that I'm largely preaching to the choir this morning. So many of you are already doing this, and I want you to know that you're a huge blessing to the leaders of Cornerstone and to everyone that God is bringing to us. Just as a case in point, very briefly, a, a husband and wife began attending Cornerstone two years ago, together with their children. They were new to the area and they began coming to Cornerstone because of our Awana ministry, because they wanted a church where their children could learn and grow. But it turns out that God was after more than just their children. Shortly after beginning to attend Cornerstone, this husband and wife found their marriage in crisis. Some secret sin had revealed. Itself and their family was on the brink of collapse. God used the teaching ministry of Cornerstone, the counseling ministry of Cornerstone to help them to face their brokenness and begin walking the path toward wholeness with the help of others in this church. The care group ministry provided a way for them to connect with others and to get the encouragement and the accountability that they desperately needed. In their lives. As for the people of Cornerstone, this husband recently wrote these words to me, and let me just read to you what he said. He said, "The people here at Cornerstone are just different. There's an intangible quality about most everyone we've been around at church, whether through care groups or Awana or other outlets." The quality is very clearly a work of God. We truly have an embarrassment of riches and are blessed beyond words with the people we have in our church. I don't know if I would even still have a family if it wasn't for the ministry of Cornerstone. God is doing a deep work of grace in the life of this man and his wife, and he's doing that work in part through his people, leaving this man to write these final words to me, which were totally unsolicited by me. He said to me, I never cease thanking God for the family he has given us at Cornerstone to walk with us through this period of refinement in our lives. We are the epitome, the living embodiment of Cornerstone's vision to the people of Cornerstone, I want to say thank you for helping me, helping my family journey from brokenness to wholeness through the power of the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ. I read this to you because I want you to receive this brother's thanks as encouragement from the Lord so that you would be encouraged to keep doing what you're doing and to excel Still more. I also want to take this opportunity to remind you that our care group ministry, which is 15 years old now, provides you a wonderful opportunity to live all of these things out that we've been talking about this morning and to experience the blessings of living in community with brothers and sisters in Christ. There's so much good that happens in our care groups that you find in Acts chapter 2. Brothers and sisters come together to devote themselves to the apostles teaching to the breaking of the bread of communion to fellowship and to prayer and to worship through song. There's a sacramental quality to I have found in my own life to our care group gatherings. Sometimes my wife and I are driving to care group and I would so much rather just take a long nap. Um, But every single time without fail, my wife and I drive away from care group and our heart is swollen and expanded and we're richer, fuller versions of ourselves than we were just four hours earlier. It's a means of grace in the life of the people of this church. So many good things happen. Many of our groups have gathered together and conducted baptisms when there's a need in the life of one member. Uh, we've seen other members of the group pitch in to contribute to that need. We've seen care groups come together uh, to reach out to the homeless uh, do evangelism, reaching out to the law, sharing the grace of Christ to uh, others in need, both physical and spiritual. There are relationships that are forged in the context of our care groups that carry over into the days of the week. There's eating together with gladness and sincerity of heart. I've seen care group members come together to help another member who's grieving the loss of a loved one, or going through a difficult time and bringing them meals and even even making, on one or two occasions, the funeral reception happen. We've seen many babies prayed for and born in these care groups, not during the meetings, but <laughs> in the care groups, with, with members after the birth bringing meals to the new parents, in the following weeks and helping babysit in various circumstances when needed. We've even seen romance blossom in several of our care groups. Some of you in this room met in your care group. I'll never forget several years ago getting in the car with my wife after a care group meeting, and my wife immediately, before she even Sat into the car. She said, did you notice the way so-and-so was looking at (laughs) so-and-so? Milton, something's happening. Love is in the air between these two. I'm a clueless guy. I didn't notice anything, and I was sitting just a few feet away from this guy and gal. I assured my wife that she was probably mistaken. But sure enough, two weeks later this guy and gal became Facebook official. (laughs) And several months later, I was officiating their wedding. (laughs) Amazing things happen in the context of community, these small communities of brothers and sisters in our care groups. Your care group is definitely not the only forum for relationships and ministry in this church, but we would like for you to view your care group as a core part of your experience of community here in the Cornerstone family. If you have time for nothing else, we would encourage you come to the Sunday morning service and be a vital part of the ministry of a care group. If you're not a part of a care group, I would encourage you to go by the table and the alcove after the service and see the care groups that are available and Find one that you can be a part of. If you are a part of a care group, explore ways that your life can become more fitted together with the members of your group. If your care group is not all that you would want it to be, then you be the change that you would like to see in your group. Seek for ways to make your care group more whole through Mutual ministry seek for ways to serve together and to bring the grace of Christ to others seek for ways to make this church more whole through whatever ministries that you are involved in. Finally, I would just uh, say to you that you're invited to our lunch that's immediately following the service today, even if you are not able to stay for the annual vision meeting that follows the lunch, we would encourage you to stick around and enjoy lunch on us. This lunch is a small thank you uh, from us for being a part of our journey from brokenness to wholeness here at Cornerstone. And we would encourage you to just receive this thank you from us and enjoy the meal. And don't feel sheepish about leaving afterward if you need to. Having said that, we would encourage you to stay for the meeting. Uh, We have the meeting planned down to the minute so as to make the most strategic use of your time in our meeting. We're going to be hearing the financial report from 2019, the financial plan for 2020, and we'll be hearing testimonies from representatives of several of our care groups here at Cornerstone. Even if you're not a member of this church, this particular meeting would be a great chance for you to get to know Cornerstone better, and we hope you'll take advantage of it. And if you're interested in learning more about care groups, definitely come to this meeting after the lunch. I know you'll be very encouraged and enlightened by the testimonies that you will hear from our care groups. Uh, Our vision for 2020. In other words, our 2020 vision. One of my New Year's resolutions was to never say that as a pastor. <laughs> and I have not lived up to that. But our vision for 2020 and beyond is simple. To keep doing what we're doing as a church. To excel still more. To keep proclaiming God's powerful profitable and holy word to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves to the lost and to the saved and to keep equipping you to do the work of the ministry so that you can flourish in your life and ministry and build up the body of Christ until we all come to the full knowledge of Jesus Christ to the fullness of the measure of the stature that belongs to him. And so that together we can help each other in this journey that we are on from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we do uh, thank you for all the good that you do. the manifold multicolored wisdom of God that is displayed through the church there 's a genius that is at work in in every true local church in this community and around the world of every age, where just normal average brothers and sisters who believed in Jesus come together and do things that to the world don't seem extraordinary, but they love one another and they partake of holy communion and they pray and they sing and they listen to a book called the Bible being preached and explained and worshiping you through song and serving together in ways that just seem completely ordinary. And yet in the context of all of that, Something wonderful happens day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade. And we are all being slowly changed by what happens as we do life together in the local church. Bless all of the brothers and sisters here at Cornerstone, Lord. I thank you for the blessing of being able to be a part of this flock for 28 years now that my wife and I and our family have had the privilege of journeying with these brothers and sisters. We pray, Lord, for all that you will bring to us throughout this coming year and in the years beyond. Enrich our knowledge of you and our skill in showing your love and bringing true and genuine help to Broken sinners who desperately need salvation and healing through Christ. We look forward to the day, Lord, when we are all gathered around your throne in complete, splendid glory. Completely whole in every way. Giving praise to you for the amazing work of grace that you've done in all of our lives. If there's any here this morning, Lord, that has never tasted of this grace. I pray that you would stir their heart and draw them to a saving knowledge of you today, that they would cry out to you, Lord Jesus, and believe in you as their Lord and Savior and receive the forgiveness of sins and salvation even today in this very moment. Thank you for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you, Lord. Receive these funds that we give in this offering. Do much with all that is given for the glory of the Lord Jesus. And we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said.